Hello again, everybody. It's me, Dave Schilling, and this is another episode of Free Validation, a West Coast style podcast about West Coast style. I'm Alana Levinson, and this is uh, this is a great episode. I, I'm so happy we just finished recording it. We don't always record the intro right after we do the episode, but this, so this week is sort of it's sort of like just post sex. Like I'm, I don't know. Yeah, I'm glowing from our guest, <laughs> the writer Ann Friedman. Anne comes on to talk to us about cottage core, about winch dresses. <laughs> Quilting. We're free associating. We're free associating. Um, Anne is just really one of the smartest people, you know? So I think this is this is one of our more intellectual eps. We really get in there. We're digging into the shit and we're finding gold. That is what our forefathers and foremothers did when they came to California digging for gold baby and we're finding some where <laughs> yeah boy are we finding some <laughs> we're the 2049ers yeah i mean also if you have any gold you want to throw our way that'd be great too absolutely yes i am especially excited about people listening to this episode because we do get into questions about sustainability and how clothes can or cannot ruin the world <laughs> yeah yeah we get serious this app Yes, this is a, a pet peeve of mine. I'm the number one anti-Zara person in the world. Oh, I didn't know that. If you're shopping at Zara, you don't care, period. Stop shopping at Zara. Dave, what if half of our listeners listen? I'm trying to help them. I, I want to know, do you, do you care? I accept that it's cheap and you can approximate certain trends, but at the same time, and we get into this in the episode, the amount of water that goes into dyeing one piece of clothing is outrageous. It's insane. And as Californians on this show, we're living through a drought and a drought that may last for a long time. And so we have to start thinking about what are we doing with our clothing choices and how does that affect the amount of water there is in the world? Mm. I know it's a bummer, Alana. It, it is a bummer. It is a bummer, but we're trying to help. We're trying to validate our listeners, and we're trying to help them. We're changing the world with this podcast. Just a little, a little <laughs> bit. Yeah. For 40 minutes every week, we, we try to change the world. We hope you like it. We hope you like it. Stick around for Ann Friedman. All right, today we are joined by journalist, recovering podcaster, and co-author of the book, Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close, Anne Friedman. Anne, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a real treat. Hi. Love being here on this sweaty LA afternoon. It is so hot, and I cannot open my window when I record. Same. As anybody who knows about recording a podcast, you, you can't just have your windows and your doors open. Okay, wait, hold on. That reminds me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got to close your window? If you can feel fresh air, you're not appropriately podcasting, I think, is the lesson. <laughs> wow. I mean, and if Anne is saying it, that's how I know. It, it's it's Bible, basically. I like to think of, of Anne as like, the only non-toxic girl boss, you know? That oh, God. <laughs> Someone once described me as this, and I had the same reaction, but I was like, if there was that word without all the toxic connotations, so just an amazing woman who's 
has a really awesome career. I do identify as more of a woman boss. Thank you for oh, yes. seeing oh, that. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Girl is infantilizing. A hundred percent. I can't believe any woman ever thought that was cool. I do feel like the meme of, like, I'm not a girl boss, I'm a woman boss, it, like, must exist somewhere already, but that does capture my essence. Oh, for sure. Woman boss. <laughs> and you are allowed to, if you do change your mind about this, use the title non-toxic girl boss for your next book. <laughs> the saying feels Great. like a good move. Just credit Alana, because I want to talk first about where you grew up and how you made it to Los Angeles, because this is a West Coast podcast. This is about West Coast style. And what do you what is your relationship to the West Coast? Uh, well, you know, the West Coast is my home. California is my home. I've lived here for probably 11 years now, 12, something like that, which is the longest I've lived anywhere in adulthood. So it, it holds that distinction for me. I was born and raised in Iowa and then went to college in the Midwest and then kind of bounced around a couple of different cities in my 20s and landed in LA for a magazine editing job when I was just shy of 30. And so a couple of things happened. Like, you know, I know a lot of people say it's hard to like make a life in LA or it's hard to meet people in LA or I don't know. I, that, I, that's a thing that I hear a lot. And that was not my experience. <laughs> my experience was really very quickly meeting a lot of people, most of whom are born and raised Angelinos who just like welcomed me with open arms. And I very quickly found a community of people I really love here. And that is one of the things I think that makes me feel so rooted here is I'm so deeply connected to so many people who were born and raised in this city and just outside of it. Yeah, I think we get a bad rap for not being welcoming here. It's not, it's not true. It's just that it's hard to find people because we're all in our cars all the time. I remember when I first moved here, like like from New York, and everyone was inviting me over to their house, like without even knowing me. And I remember being like, are they going to kill me? What's going on? <laughs> no, I think people are really nice, actually. My theory is that Hollywood people write the narrative. And because people who move here to do a Hollywood thing are having a very particular kind of experience, that's why the reputation is as such. But because I didn't live here to do anything, or I didn't move here to do anything Hollywoody and remain decidedly not Hollywoody, that is just nowhere remotely close to my experience. So you're right, bad rap, undeserved. Yeah, the art people, the literary people, they don't really have that same kind of artificial existence that is, like you said, the the norm in terms of how we articulate life in los angeles how we how we make art about it is just like oh it stinks and everybody's got plastic surgery and valets everywhere and i mean some of us do that i valet as much as possible but it's not like that everywhere that's specific to you dave <laughs> yes i think those are just my personal things that i do that's just a personal choice it's like what's your what what do you like to order for dinner or whatever you know what i mean it's like that's just personality it's not a city <laughs> Yes, and we're all myopic people that only care about our own worldviews, mm. and that's a problem. But that's why we have this podcast, Dan, is so that we can learn about other people and how they approach the world. And I want to know how your style evolved when you moved here, because I think LA does change people a lot. It changed me. I think it probably changed Alana a little bit. Mm. How did LA change the way that you look at your personal style? And when I say style, I don't just mean your clothes. I mean, how you live your life, the the person that you are projecting to the world. Yeah, I 
I think in some ways it's hard to separate from the time in my life when I moved here. I think I was in a moment of transition from being like very striver 20s woman boss career oriented (laughs) there we go yeah there we go to being to being I don't know like maybe a little bit broader in my thinking about what constitutes the good life I think that that thing I said about who my social circle is here in LA which is to say like a delightful mix of people who have all kinds of jobs also really affected how I felt about the place work should hold in my own. So, you know, other places I'd lived, I hung out with primarily people who did what I did for a living. And that creates this feeling of like, you're always on, even if you're at happy hour, like, even if you're like just gossiping about your personal life, there's sort of this like tacit thing that what you have in common is the work you do. Um, And that is just not at all true of my social world here. And so I think moving here, lifestyle wise was really like deprioritizing work in some way and it had this inverse effect of like not making me fall off the edge of the earth but like made I think my work more interesting and like weirder and more fun access to better marijuana did me good like access to the beach did me good all these friends who have different jobs so they would talk about their work and their experiences like that did me good so um that's that's the biggest shift I think of Do you think you have a harder time being completely candid about who you are around people in your own industry? Because I find that, that having to be on guard and not being able to be honest is in itself stressful. Because it's like, oh, this this person is also a writer. This person is also in the fashion world. Or this person is also doing this other thing that I do. It's stressful because I can't just be like, this sucks or I'm, I'm miserable about this thing and I have to pretend that I'm having a great time all the time. I don't feel the need to pretend I'm having a great time, but it does feel more loaded when I talk about my work with people who also do what I do. Like, you know, where I'm like, oh, I don't know how you feel about this person who I kind of want to complain about, or I don't, I, you know what I mean? Or like, I, 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 maybe it's just, I'm a little more guarded, um, in certain ways. And what's really fun about having friends that do really different things is like, you get to be the like omniscient narrator of what's going on in your industry. You can be like, let me tell you where I fit into this whole picture. And same for them, you know? It's great. This is why I, I really value Alana as a friend. Because we can always complain about people Aww. together. And I never have to be like, oh, is that your friend? We have the same taste in that people, too. Yes, same. the people that I hate, she hates, too. It's very important in a podcast co-host to hate the same people. <laughs> it really is. It is so nice. That's most of the work. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, Anne, did, that, did what you're des- describing kind of translate into how you were dressing then? You know, you just talked about being like early girl boss, probably going to the office a lot. I mean, what was work clothes like when you first moved here? Yeah, so I did have an office job and it was like a bossy office job my first year here. And my work uniform was jeans, like a silky thrifted top and like ankle boots. Oh, that's of the time too. Let me set the time. Right. 2011. It was 2011. And... And it was really the right mix of like, I feel professional and also it's not that kind of office. So that's what I I wore a lot of that. I also, um, I think my repertoire of like clothing I can wear when it's really hot out. I know it's a real like basic, (laughs) basic thing to say, but like, you know, I, I think I acquired a lot more tiny dresses, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. I, I was a little bit 
more femme maybe in those days. So I, I kind of had like tiny dresses that I wore on the weekends and at the beach. And then I, and then yeah, jeans and silk shirts when I was bossing. I wonder if it's um the time we're in or probably just a natural thing that happens when you age is just getting less femme and how you dress. For me, I'm really noticing it. I just. I think it's hard for me to separate it like aging general style trends and also just like impending sense of like social environmental collapse like or you know what I mean like there's something where I like 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 a little bit more functional a little bit like uh, more comfortable that's that's maybe where I find myself leaning like I definitely had um had a real I don't want to say conscious but like there was a I had a I had a palpable desire to maybe move away from a certain kind of femme dressing like in the early Trump years you know like that was that was when I like grew out my armpit hair you know what I mean oh yeah me too and it's still here but wait that's actually a good point though because some people and women in particular like their response to the whole impending doom is like the cottage core I'm like it's still relaxed but it's like milkmaid yeah. in the field you know, yes. that's very femme. Perfect segue. I, Thank you. I was, well, I was going to say I was at a wedding a couple weeks ago and I was shopping for something to wear, even though I didn't need something to wear to the wedding. And um, I, I truly feel like the only options were two side flank cutout dresses, wench core, or like that was it. Like, you know what I mean? There were not, um, and, and I ended up wearing a suit and was the object of much love and devotion from like the 10 years younger guests at the wedding like that's always a good feeling yeah that, that's how you know you did it oh my god i live for it the, the kids table thinks i'm awesome a hundred percent like the kid the women at the kids table are like aspirational like wearing a suit to a wedding and that's how i feel i was like this is aspirational for me too not wench core dude wench core is, i mean oh god is there is there something um off about that because I mean, it's hearkening back to a time where there wasn't really a whole hell of a lot of gender equality. Is that weird? I'm saying this as a as a cis male. It's it's striking. Like it would be sort of like I, I'm gonna dress like a slave. Yeah, I don't, I don't know like how deep the thinking goes behind it, like on an individual level. I mean, I also think that this is why that thing Alana said is it just we're aging. You know, I mean, maybe if I were 20, I would be in a kind of like. Um, you know, like ruched top, big poofy sleeves dress, you know, like, which is what I'm really talking about when I say wenchcore. Maybe that would be my thing if, if, if I were 10 years younger. The culture in terms of like writers, they're definitely tying it to that. Like they're definitely tying it to like this alt left. I don't even know if that termination means anything. Probably to the people who are listening to this know what I'm talking about. The whole like, yeah, the girl boss is dead. We just want to be barefoot housewives in the kitchen. And we just want to dress like that. Like we were sold this lie about achieving. And fuck it. And maybe your husband having a husband who pays for you is better than having a boss. So I, th I do think it's connected. I don't think everyone who wears it is like making a political statement. But it's not a coincidence to me that this trend is popping up now. Yeah. And there's also something about how just like general fashion trend cycles of like, you know, the 90s does the 70s is kind of like where we are right now. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, like that's also kind of a 70s look that can be put. You know what I mean? Like some of it is also just cyclical. That's you're seeing my chest here right now. 100 percent. 
I'm here for it. I am here for the lower the buttons want to go. Like this is also an LA stereotype of like men with their shirt unbuttoned really far. And also like men with lots of rings. I feel like those are two things when I moved here, I was like, what is up with the men here and all their rings? (laughs) Um, But yeah, chest hair that pairs well with chest hair. To me, you're so right that that's what it is, but it's not giving 1970s flowy dress to me. It's not giving free love. It's very much like the nap dress trend is like, I'm on my plantation and I'm going to scantily, scantily clad, walk out onto the porch in my nap dress. You know what I mean? Am I interpreting that wrong? But I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think maybe it is. I, I think like if what you were wearing in the recent past was more like super tight, like going out dresses, maybe it does feel like a certain kind of like freedom to you. Like maybe mm-hmm. it's not, I don't know. I mean, I really, maybe I'm just um, feeling down on like, like the media TM's ability to assign any deeper meaning to anything right now. Like, I think maybe that's what you're hearing in my, in my reluctance to think too hard about it. Uh, Yes. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah. Which sucks because we're, we technically are doing that with this podcast, but no, Dave and I have gone on many rants about how not everything is a core. Mm -hmm. Even though we constantly say things are core. There is an industry around that. Mm -hmm. And I think we should talk about that a little bit. The idea that there needs to be trends. Mm. If there are no trends, then there are no trend reporters. And if there are no trend reporters, there are no trend analysts. And I have to write about trends at the time sometimes. And I'm like, I don't know if people are really wearing berets that much. But somebody said that they were. And so I need... And I have space to fill. (laughs) Yes, I have to write a thousand words to get paid. But also they then people buy the berets. It, it's actually all about capitalism. It's like, okay, we got to keep people shopping. So we have to convince them there's an object that everyone's wearing that they need to wear too. Yeah. There's also a timing thing that feels really particular right now that, that feels relevant to my experience of, you know, fashion or style or just getting dressed right now, which is like, who am I in the vaccination era? Like, who am I after spending a year in my home? Like, a sense of, right, like, I work from home, and so maybe I wear this nap dress all the time. Like, maybe that's somebody's experience. And it, it actually is more about the immediate global events that are affecting us in that sense. That feels like a thing that I find myself thinking about. Like, is this still me? Like, something old in my closet? Or, like, who am I now? Like, like questions that feel really loaded um, to put onto just, like, what am I wearing today? Or what am I wearing to this wedding? But I do think it it uh, it is informed by who you are, what your perspective is every day. Like, mm-hmm. To have a varied closet means that you can be a different person depending on your mood. And I'm so much more interested in how individuals approach the idea of getting dressed than, oh, everybody's wearing fucking pirate outfits or something, <laughs> right? Like, I'm more interested in, like, what your clothes say about you as a person, Mm-hmm. Uh, then oh boy everybody's wearing the same skirt now like i i don't know we, we're all making that up we're making that up because there are 300 million people in, in the united states and most of them have no idea what we're talking about most of them could care less yeah exactly we yeah. wear kirkland signature we still have oakley sunglasses and none of this even crosses our peripheral vision yeah it's like you know, it has like electoral college 
vibes where it's like <laughs> if three people in Brooklyn do it, that's worth at least. If it's the right three people. The right three, then it's a full-blown trend across the country. If Jeremy O'Harris is doing it, it's a trend. If I'm doing it, it's a bad choice. It's just a guy. <laughs> just a guy wearing a thing. I don't know like what kind of rabbit holes you're down on TikTok these days, but um, a thing that it it the machine is serving me a lot is like, what are the three words that define your style? Have you seen any of this? No, scary. It's, it is, it's like, it's super interesting, but like, you know, that thing you said, Dave, about I'm more interested in why you wear what you wear than like what is necessarily like a fad or a trend. It, it is, I think, designed to be an, uh, an antidote to that. Right. So it's like, okay, like, you know, if I'm like, crafty classic and whatever some other word then that is my guiding light throughout the ups and downs of many trends and that should be like a way of me understanding when I do and don't need to jump on a trend bandwagon and um and I think like it feels wrong to me to just like the three words approach doesn't feel real like I think it's much more gut level than than that but I I do kind of appreciate the uh the attempt to counter this notion that like there's a right thing to be wearing for everyone right now. Yeah. Well, the worst thing in the world to me is, is Shein or Sheen or shine or however you say it, the the Chinese company that just kind of ma- mass produces clothes and it's flattened fashion for a lot of, a lot of people who are on TikTok and who do watch those haul videos where people are like, here's all the stuff I got that came in a day and was made in less time than that that kind of mass consumed and um and and very homogenous style of dressing even though we as a older people talk about like oh you can wear whatever you want now it's great those people are still like following the trends and like doing haul videos and and adding the brands on Instagram and all that stuff and i think there's on the flip side of that the idea of scarcity and things that are handmade. And that is also a reaction to the uh, voracious capitalism that motivates a lot of clothing brands. And something that I found really interesting uh, when we were talking about this episode is that you come from a line of quilters. And quilting is, of course, the exact opposite of someone mass-producing clothes in India and paying people five cents an hour or something. The, the quilting requires time and patience and effort. So can you tell me about this like family lineage of quilters? I mean, just saying it, I come from a line of quilters. I get excited. As opposed to mentally ill mobsters, which is what I get to say. <laughs> and over to you. Yeah, I, I come from like very staid, practical quilting solid quilting midwest women and it is it's interesting because um it is something that i i think i resisted when i was younger as like you know on aesthetic grounds like i don't i wouldn't look at maybe the quilts women in my family have made and be like oh that's something that i want to wear hang in my house it's a little bit more of like maybe like a stereotype of what you think about with a quilt you know like a real traditional block quilted those star shapes things like that but the practice of it when I really like started to get into this is like oh it's all about reusing tiny scraps of things like you know 
I can, when I'm about to get rid of a piece of clothing from my closet or when, you know, I mentioned I wore tiny dresses a bunch when I first moved here, all the hems I cut off of them, like I'm still sewing with like the scraps that I, from altered clothing from years ago, stuff like that. Like it, I was like, oh, this really does align with, um, you know, kind of like how I want to live and be like, there's a real alignment with like a Midwest practicality, but also in, in less flattering light, the, the way that I want to be like, if I'm wearing it, no one else can have it. Like, this is what motivates me as a thrifter. Like if someone compliments me, I'm just like, oh, it's vintage. Like you can never go buy one is like the like shitty diva behavior that really motivates my secondhand clothing buying also motivates my like making things drive, you know, just like right. the sense of like only one exists and no, you can't pay me to make it. And no, I um, can't tell you where you can buy one of your own. And so I, I think that it's hard for me to separate the like getting excited about being part of this quilting lineage from this broader way of thinking about what I wear and as like a found item, secondhand altered objects way. This is um, of course the business model of Bodie, the clothing brand from New York. Oh my God. Emily Bodie has made a, an industry of her own out of taking scraps of things and building new things and them being one of one and $4,000 or something outrageous. Like I've never bought anything Bodhi because I simply can't afford it. But the idea of it is very appealing for what I think the reasons that you're, you're, you're bringing up, which is scarcity. Oh, it feels so luxury. Yes. Going back to the conversation we were having about personal style mm-hmm. and how do I define who I am? Well, you can define yourself more accurately in a more articulate fashion when you only have things that are for you Mm -hmm. and that's why i think why people get bespoke clothing custom clothing is because it's only yours oh talk about the height of luxury you know like something that is literally tailored to your taste and your body it is interesting though you know i want to say that um so this is a thing that emily adams bodie is known for and her brand is known for but also like in the 80s, Ralph Lauren was hacking up quilts and making other things with them. And, you know, there is uh, a now L.A.-based brand called Carlene that was making quilt jackets for, I think, four, three or four years before it was a Bodie thing. Not at the same price point, you know, much more at like a super small business rather than fashion school grad high-end $800 trousers level. And so, you know, there's like – it also has a lineage in – you know, in other clothing brands, like this idea that like, yeah, you can't sew, but you, but you're going to kind of reap the benefit of like a found textile like that. There's only one that, that is a long time appealing thing, you know, like a long history of that. As someone who can sew very well, or has that background, how do you feel about all of this? (laughs) I mean, I sort of feel like, uh, it's again, like, the bragging rights go down significantly if you can just go buy it at Bodie. You know what I mean? Like if, if someone compliments my quilt jacket and I say, thanks, it's Bodie. They know I dropped, you know, $1,000. But if I, say, if I say, thanks, I bought this quilt for $5 at an estate sale and I made this jacket myself. Like, I'm sorry, but like one of those answers feels better than the other. <laughs> the latter is where Alana's coming from. She's like, I found this in, in at the bottom of a dumpster and I hosed it down with Febreze and now I wear it. And I think here's the thing. Obviously, I think it's great that um, instead of like mass producing 
quilted craft, which a lot of the other fast fashion brands are doing, like fake crocheted that's actually made oh, with yeah. a machine and stuff like that. Like, it's great that Bodhi is, like, employing people to hand make things. I think that's awesome. But what they get in points for that, they totally lose in, like, the price point. Like, I do believe that people should pay more for handmade items, but a funny little anecdote here is um, we went to a wedding in Oaxaca and the groom for like each day had an outfit and it literally looked exactly like the shirts you could buy in the market um, by like the like art the little artisanal market by Mexican women who would like hand embroider shirts. So he was basically wearing what everyone else was wearing. Everyone else just got it at, um, you know, the market. And at one point we we're like, oh, what market did you get that? I said, oh, no, it's Bodie. My sister brought it for me from New York. Like, I'm wearing Bodie all week. And I was just like, oh, man. <laughs> toe Bodie on the body, baby. Mm. Well, that's when it becomes where it's like, I actually, I don't know if the people who are buying it are buying it because of this, like, handcraft. That's, like, not it. But I think that's true of every trend. Yeah. That's that's true. At the beginning, there are the early adopters who believe in the mission statement, whatever that mission might be. If it's um, you know handcrafting and, and and recycled materials for Bodhi, or if it's like the 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 freedom uh, and the kind of drapiness and the sophistication of Armani or or ALD and New York and Queens being the greatest place in the whole world and and reappropriating prep and that kind of stuff. There are those people who really care and intellectually and creatively vibe with that stuff. And then there's everybody who's like, that's cool and I can afford it. It doesn't matter what it meant. And that's true of, I think, any symbol in life. Like symbols have meaning at the beginning and then slowly but surely those symbols are co-opted and then perverted and turned into something it never meant to be in the first place. And the other thing that happens concurrently with that, it's like this desire to be like a real individual, the desire to be like, I'm the only one with it. Like the thing I just copped to, I think is a reason why people love stuff with like an exorbitant price point. You know, it's kind of like another way of being like, I'm the only one who can get this. So that that piece of it as well is like, as it gets knocked off and becomes a much more accessible look, the like the cachet of a uh, reaction to the waste and disposability of fast fashion and like the cachet of handmadeness like kind of goes away. Yeah. And so often the techniques that are just being appropriated from, you know, artisans of color from all over the world, you know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's also at that market, there are these amazing bags made out of s- scraps of plastic that they sell for $5. I've now started seeing them in boutiques here for like 400. Like clearly someone just goes down there, buys a bunch of them and resells them. But I know, I know for a fact that there's got to be fashion designers here spinning. I have a sustainable bag brand. Like I take scraps of plastic and like weave them into bags. And it's like, that is really cool. But it's like, where did you learn how to do that? I get those press releases all the time now. You do. I know you do. It's horrible. Yeah. So it's just sort of like, but I mean, not to be a scold that's like, is your clothing, you know, entirely pure? I mean, that's just also ridiculous. Everybody's trying to make a buck. And the interesting thing about living in LA is we have the fashion district downtown where there are just people putting garments together or people selling garments out of stalls or what have you. In the same way that in in other you know countries in North and South America, there are those communities that make and sell things on their own. And you can just go and steal that. 
Or you can go there as a consumer and buy that stuff, and then at some point it becomes a trend and somebody sees it, and then they, they, they co-opt it and they steal it and they do what they want with it. But to me, that's the most sustainable way to make a better world is <laughs> like, I'm not going to buy stuff that's fancy. I'm going to buy stuff from people that are making things here that are sole proprietors. Am I going to do that tomorrow? No, but I can tell you as a listener to go do that while I wear my Gucci loafers. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, well, I wanted to say one thing to bring it back to quilting and this kind of question of craft out of necessity or ingenuity versus like for aesthetics or like maybe as recreation. And, you know, one one really interesting thing is that like quilting as like you know colonists from Europe brought it to the U.S. was like a thing for really wealthy people with like you use brand new materials and whole cloth it was not about piecing and reusing scraps like that quilting tradition comes from predominantly formerly enslaved southern black women you know what I mean like there are also variations it's not just like quilting and what's really interesting is like the quilting practice by the older generations of women in my family is centered on new materials and you know it probably owes something to to both you know these like southern black traditions of quilting and also these colonial european traditions it's somewhere in between but the one i practice is like maybe the person who on some level is like yeah i'm gonna make this you know reworked plastic bag myself you know <laughs> rather than rather than buy it and I think it is important to acknowledge that and acknowledge like within something that gets called like a single tradition or style there are actually many approaches to it often varying greatly by the the sort of privileged position of the people practicing that craft so for sure especially with like dyeing things different co- I mean it's almost overwhelming like totally Dying, embroidery. Every single culture has its version. Yeah. One of the things that we know the least about is how our clothes are made. And we don't think about the history of clothing at all. Our society does not consider clothes as important. I think people know the history of an automobile and the evolution of the automobile better than they know the evolution of a pair of pants. And everybody wears pants at some point in their life and even just as it's related to sustainability like I only know this because I was on a podcast where I had to read a one sheet it was like like a very very large like one of the largest sources of water waste is from dyeing textiles in the world like I didn't know that cotton in particular yeah Mm -hmm. yeah like whoa and that's what's so terrible about fast fashion ultimately is the amount of water that they use beyond the human rights violations and the terrible wages and the dangerous situations they put people into where buildings will set on fire and nobody can get out because the doors are locked from the outside. It's the fact that it just burns through natural resources so much. And I want to ask you two questions before we go. What is your favorite, maybe not trend, but style choice in Los Angeles? And what is your least favorite? Oh, man. Should I prepared for this question? No, this was something I decided to ask you right now. Well, one thing that brings me great pleasure in Los Angeles is really nailing the sundown weather transition. So, you know, like... Yes. 
Oh, that's that. such a good answer. We all know the temperature drops like 20 degrees often between, you know, the sun is out and the sun is not out. And so it sometimes leads to like what I think are like very interesting choices I would not otherwise make. You know, like uh, a, a relatively early in LA memory was like I was wearing these like high-waisted crushed velvet Liz Claiborne Liz Sport pants with like a cropped shirt, like a crop sleeveless shirt and like driving with the windows down, but the seat warmer on like that combo of things is like that chaos is like, (laughs) yeah, that's a classic, right? Like getting ready to put another layer on for the evening, but it's like, you know, anyway, that was like a January LA mood. And so that's something that I enjoy as like a getting dressed challenge and also like appreciating when I nail it or when someone I know just nails that transition. And what's something that you hate? Uh, beanies anytime. Like I really just like, yeah, we're really aligned. We've talked about this before. Come be our third. Host. I'm sorry, yeah. but like, <laughs> I just like, there are so many other hat choices you could make in the world, but like, you know, some, for some reason, like the, the any time of your beanie is just like, I, I can't with oh, it. And you know what? People who are born and raised in LA have like a sickness about it. I was helping my boyfriend go through his hats and there was just one beanie in there that was like, oh, oversized. Like you could tell like high-end yarn, like navy. Slouchy beanie. Slouchy, right? Ugh. And I was thinking to myself, like only a born and bred lost. Because it had no, it wasn't warm. Like it's not like you couldn't ha- use that in Boston. It was like airy. It was disgusting. And I was like, Bobby, please, please, can we get rid of this? He's like, no, this is an amazing beanie. I was like, you know what? Go with God. It's in your DNA. I'll never buy another one of those again in my life. I don't know, man. (laughs) This is what I'm saying. They have this sickness about them. They have to have beanies in 70 degrees. I used to be that guy, and I will never be that guy again. I'm too uh, aware of myself. When were you last that guy, TM? Like, how many years ago are we talking? That's a wonderful question, because I've changed. The world has changed. And I think it must have probably been 20... 2016 I think it was Trump ruined it for me no uh I think it was when I when I went through my divorce to be perfectly candid I started to be more thoughtful about how I dressed before I wanted to dress to prevent people from noticing me Mm -hmm. and now I dress specifically to be noticed (laughs) and to be myself you know I think I was wearing beanies because everybody had one Mm -hmm. yeah I mean, you're a comedy writer on the East Side. We get, you got the glasses, the beanies. I gotta have it all, baby. I gotta have I gotta have a hoodie and and skinny jeans. Oh, that all of those things are bad. But Anne, you're not bad. You're great. <laughs> You've been a wonderful guest. Where can people follow you on social media? Oh, I don't really do much social media these days. Everything is on my website. It's just AnneFriedman.com. That will point you to everything you actually need to know. Excellent. And again, this has been such a pleasure. Uh, We'll have to have you back soon to talk more about how much we all love Bodhi. Amazing. No beanies, no Bodhi. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs) I'm really glad she said what she said about beanies, Alana. I'm really glad that Anne threw down the gauntlet about how this has to stop. The beanie agenda must be stopped. Honestly, beanies and fast fashion are at the same level of abuse.
in terms of our world. Both of them gotta go. Yes, but even if you get like a very sustainable locally sourced beanie, it's still a beanie and you still live in Los Angeles. That's what I'm saying. There, it's not okay. Does it ever get cold enough for you to need to wear a sock on your head? It doesn't. It doesn't. No. And let's say it did. There's got to be other options for you to wear. Balaclava? Sure. I actually like one of those because they just, it's like, it's giving, I'm going to rob a convenience store. Yes. It's very MIA core. Yeah. I like that. I've been trying to get my friend to knit me one of those forever. Did you not have one when you were on the East Coast? No. I, I don't remember anyone having one when I was on the East Coast. I feel like they're cool now. No, they are cool. They're a new, they're a thing now, but they weren't really back then. It was Spring Breakers that made it cool, right? Yeah. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Free Validation. Until then, do not forget, if you love this show, and I know you do, because you're listening to episode six or whatever it is. Yeah, the outro. You haven't turned it off yet. You're still here. You're a fan. Go write a review. Run. Run. Or you're, at, you're probably at your computer or at your phone. You can do it now. You don't have to go anywhere. Write us a review. Tell the world how much you love this show because it means a lot to us. It will mean a lot down the road. And it, it just it's your ability to give us free validation. We give you free validation every week. Yeah, we need some too. Yeah. So leave that review. Tell your friends. And please be excellent to each other. Yeah. Like in Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. And the environment. And that too. Yeah. Stop buying Zara. Please. Unless Zara wants to sponsor the podcast, in which case, I love Zara. Oof. We love you. Bye. Bye. For a 